you're listening to the Lore and Legend Christmas Specials. This tale is called A Taste of Honey, or Renadine Ruins Christmas. Christmas in Camelot. Have you ever seen anything so wondrous? For 15 days leading up to Christmas tide, there are tournaments, games, and jousting. A great many dancers, jolly, elegant, and boisterous in their turn. There are saints and shamans, holy men and women. They lead songs that are sung in bright and beautiful voice that raise your spirit up to the very mansions of heaven. Yes, there are storytellers as well, and I hear that even they get their wages in full when they come to tell at King Arthur's court. You see, there's a tower, King Arthur's tower, in which is kept the king's own treasury, piled high with all of the beautiful riches and wonderful gifts that are brought over the course of the year in tributes to the king, and all the treasures that his knights, by their valour, carry back from their adventures through lands familiar and strange to our kith and kin. There is housed the king's gold, his magical weapons, and the thirteen treasures of the island of Britain. And every year after he throws open this tower, and none are sent away without receiving some great prize from his own hand in kind. King Arthur himself wears his simple golden coronet and is dressed in a fine tunic of green and yellow silk, embroidered with curling wreaths and garlands, and the king's own heraldic charge, the bird of paradise displayed upon it. Behind him, the famous Popinjay itself is perching saucily, marching back and forth in his glittering cage and conversing fluently with all the king's honoured guests. Beside him sits the queen, grey-eyed Guinevere, radiant and resplendent in her sovereignty. And his closest friends and most loyal knights are seated close by too, in high spirits and sleek array. The ones that are called Sir Grifflet and famous Sir Gawain, There is also to be seen Agravain of the Hard Hand and Bishop Baldwin of the Church. But most of all, the food. Ah, the food! (laughs) The tables they are laden with dishes of delicious meats, warming stew, sweetbreads and baked fruit, garnished with fragrant spices and sugars, garlic and herbs, nutmeg and honey and butter. There's roast geese, venison, fish and mutton, chestnut soup, turnip stew, lamprey pie, blackberry and apple tarts, sugared fruits and almonds. Of course, the centrepiece of the feast, the boar's head, carried in to the sound of trumpets, and the boar's head carol led by the minstrels. It's mounted on a bright silver dish, a single apple wedged between its teeth. Roast strips from its haunches are served out among all the guests. 
and the beer is brown, and the wine is bright and warmly spiced. And every day, the seats at the tables must be changed. For hours at a time at least, noble and commoner are expected to sit elbow to elbow at the same table. And in the same way, whatever fare is prepared for lords or commoners has to be shared and shared alike. And so King Arthur himself eats last, and he dines upon a thick frumen tea with raisins, and breaks the crust of humble pie. And lowly shepherds taste honeyed quail, peacock, smoked venison, dismembered heron. And no man would dare to be seen to eat his trencher, for every belly is filled, and the bread on every table is white. And there are twelve dishes for every two that sit at that table. Aye, but there is something that you must know about Christmas in Camelot's court. And that is this. It is the custom and the decree of King Arthur that at the Christmas feast, no one may drink a single drop or taste a morsel of food until one of the following has occurred. Either a tale has been told of some great wonder or marvel, of some great hero or great adventure, or else some great trial or deed should occur right there and then in their midst to astound the heart and raise up the soul. And so tonight, though the tables are heaving with delicacies and delights to make the tongue water, King Arthur he nods, and he smiles at each of his guests benignly. Not one sip or bite has yet been taken. All are waiting. All glance around, expecting. All of them are hungry. Well, then there's a fluttering of wings from behind Arthur. It's the popinjay in its cage. And he cries, Here! Hear, hear my tale. There's a ripple of mirth through the whole court, and somebody shouts, what has the parrot got to say? Sir Grifflet takes down the parrot in his gilded cage and delivers him to the floor, and then the popinjay tells this tale. You must know that once upon a time, Reynard the Fox asked his friend Brune the Bear if he could come and stay with him at his home for the winter. The Brune reluctantly accepted. But you must help me to bring in the honey from the beehives in the winter woods, he said. My family will be staying with us this Christmas Eve, and we must have a jug full of sweet honey for each of us. And Reynard agreed, and he was as good as his words, after a fashion. In truth, Brune did most of the hard work, while Reynard made a big show of complimenting Brune, for the dexterity with which he drew out the honeycombs from the hives, the precision with which he drained them into the jugs, and the strength that allowed him to carry so many more of those honey-filled jugs than Renardine could. More than once, Reynard reached out to filch a 
taste of that sweet honey, but Brun batted his paw away. Start now, he said, and it will all be gone by Christmas. When they were finished, Reynard and Brun had filled a single great pot of honey, which they rolled into the hollow beneath the roots of a certain tree and under the shrub of a thick pine brush. Then they returned home through the woods. But here's the thing, Reynard's mind kept returning to the sweet smell and the glistening stickiness of the honey, and he lay in bed all night licking his lips with his long pink tongue. Just a taste, he said to himself. Just a single taste of honey. The next day, Reynard said to Brune, Friend, some good friends of mine have been delivered of a newborn kitling, and I must pay my respects. Would you lend me your boots for the journey? Oh, said Brune, of course. And then Reynard stole straight through the winter woods and he searched underneath the pine brush and then he thrust his head inside the pot of honey and he licked his lips and he bared his teeth and he ate up a whole third of the pot and then he lay down against the trunk of the tree and he took a long nap only to wake up later and slink back home to Brune the bear. There you are, said Brune the bear. What did they call the newborn? And still sleepy on his full stomach, Renadine could only think to say, Below the brim. And Brune scratched his head. Below the brim? That's a strange name, is that? What do you mean? asked Reynard innocently. Aren't all you bears all called Grizzly and Hugsy and Winnie Pooh? So Brune relented. It wasn't long after that, Renadine was thinking once again about the pot of honey. Just another taste, he said to himself. Just a little taste of the honey. And so he told Brune that his friends had been delivered of another child, and he left the house. When he returned, Brune greeted him and asked what had they named the newborn this time. Renadine yawned idly, and he said, Oh, he is called Halfway Mark. Halfway Mark? Brune cried. What strange names you foxes give to one another. I don't dare ask after your brother's names. What do you mean? Reynard protested. Aren't all you bears all called Fozzy and Yogi and Padderton? And so Brune relented once again. Of course, Reynard couldn't leave that pot of honey well alone. Just one last taste, he said to himself. 
just a small taste of honey one final time. And soon he was asking to borrow Brune's boots to go and see a third newborn kitlink. And Brune was half mad with puzzlement by now. But what did he know of the way of foxes? And when he questioned Renadine on his return, he said that the cub was called Down to the Dregs. Down to the... Are you sure that is his name, Renard? What? said Renard indignantly. Are you bears not all called things like Bungle and Bobo and Baloo? Brune shrugged and muttered to himself, Well, what do I know about the ways of foxes? Soon enough, it was Christmas Eve, and Brune pulled on his boots, and he called on Reynard. Everyone will be here soon, Brune said. Let's fetch the pot of honey and make ready for our guests. Of course, when Brune rolled the honey pot out from under the pine thicket, he thought it seemed strangely light under the paw, and when he looked inside, he saw only a few long sticky threads of honey were left in the pot at all, and Brune turned at once upon Reynard. Below the brim, halfway marked down to the dregs, you greasy-tailed rascal. I knew it all along. You have been eating my honey. It can't be so. It isn't so, and it never shall be so, Reynard cried. How could it be that I would steal our honey? I haven't left your side except to go and be godparent to my friend's newborn babes. Of course, Brune, he didn't believe him, and he fumed in angry silence as he rolled the empty pot all the way home. Reynard, of course, did not stop talking the whole way, protesting his innocence to the top of the snow-capped trees. And when they got home, Brune was exhausted from the walk, from rolling the pot, and from Renadine's incessant mivering. What do I know about the ways of foxes, he muttered as he threw logs onto the fire for warmth and fell down into his great armchair. I know about your ways, Reynard. I hope that you are looking forward to when my family arrives and explaining to them why they have no honey to eat this eve. Soon, the exhausted bear was snoring in his armchair by the fire. And as he slept, Reynard the fox stole over to the honeypot one last time. He reached his paw into the bottom, and he drew out the last long threads of golden honey. He smeared them all around Brune Bear's snout. The heat of the crackling fire melted those long sticky threads, 
so that Brune's nose and chops glistened in the firelight. When Brune the bear woke up some time later, he did so with a start. For his mama and his papa, his brother and his uncles, all of his in-laws were standing at the far end of the room, gazing at him with shocked and outraged expressions on their face. Renardine pointed at him triumphantly. See, it's oozing straight out of his snout. I told you that he ate all the honey. When the parrot's tale is done, all laugh and feel more merry. And the king smiles and he laughs and he claps graciously. But still, he makes no move to taste the delicacies that weigh down the table. Such as this tale was mere merrymaking, not wonder-telling. No great deed or miracles in that place were unfolding. The next to rise is one who cuts a dashing figure, with his golden beard, his cloak of deepest green, his tunic of blue and red roses. Into the crescent of the hall he steps, and he is the Welsh hero, Taliesin, the king's storyteller, and the legendary Prince of Bards. You've been listening to the Lore and Legend Christmas Specials. This tale was called A Taste of Honey, or Renadine Ruins Christmas. Your storyteller today was Rick Scott, with music composed and performed by Robert Bentor, with additional music from Brendan and Derek Feister on Bandcamp and additional music and sound effects from the community at freesound.org. To find out about the folklore behind this tale, visit us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. Thank you to Paul Jackson for your regular contributions, which are much appreciated. You too, listener, can help us to keep improving lore and legend by paying as little as 50p toward the time, effort and monetary costs of producing each episode of the show. Visit our website to find out more. A Merry Christmas to all of you beautiful story folk. Thank you for listening. Join us tomorrow to hear another tale from Camelot and the Christmas court of King Arthur. <laughs>